Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. So 1 Kings chapter 9 is where we're at. Click in your Bibles to that spot or flip there if you're old school. And we'll be in 1 Kings chapter 9. This is uh, God's second appearance to Solomon. He just got done completing the temple. He prays over the temple. Then he builds a bunch of other things. And then God kind of visits him again. But this is a turning point in Solomon's life. He's finished the work that God had for him. And now what's going to happen? What happens next? So it, it, it comes to pass in verse 1. It came to pass when Solomon finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all Solomon's desire, which he wanted to do, that the Lord appealed to Solomon a second time. And he appeared to him at Gibeon. In the last chapter, Solomon dedicated the new temple and the Lord talking to Solomon alone confirms that what Solomon was doing was the right thing. So, uh, when, when kings do the wrong thing, God usually sends a prophet, right? And like Nathan came to David. Um, but in this case, the Lord's talking to Solomon in part because Solomon did what he was asked to do. He just obeyed. Uh, so now what is going to happen next? The life's work is done. What could possibly be better than building the temple for the Jewish people? Uh, we get this phrase in there of all of Solomon's desire. In the Hebrew, that's keshek. Throughout the Old Testament, the only time you see the word keshek is in regards to sin. And it's connected, and this could be the exception, um, but it is the desire for things that are ungodly in every other context that it's used. So this is an odd thing. Solomon does God's work, and he builds the king's house. That's the civic part, or the, the administrative offices for Israel. And then a third thing's added, and all Solomon's desire, which he wanted to do. This creates a new fold on Solomon, that he's also doing things that are sinful, while he's trying to do God's work. And this is kind of weird. God uses him to get the work done, but we get this hint in the next two chapters that something's up with Solomon's walk. And it's something that's not going to be good when we get to chapter 11. So we're going to get us right up to chapter 11 tonight, and we're going to see the seeds of sin taking root in a godly man's life. And they're weaved in these chapters in some really cool ways. So if we pair this Solomon's desire thing with Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes, where Solomon himself writes that he pursued everything his heart desired, he's not talking about godly things. He was talking about pride, lust, and greed. And he pursued them with everything he had. And we get a hint of that in Kings, and you really got to go to Ecclesiastes to get a sense of like he had some stuff going on that wasn't really good. Uh, so Solomon writes this. I think this is deliberate. Here's a passage from Ecclesiastes so that you don't have to trust me on this. We'll just go to Ecclesiastes and read it. Solomon writes, I communed with my own heart. Uh, again, that's a bad place to start usually. I communed with my own heart saying, Lo, I am come to great estate and I've gotten more wisdom than all of them but they, that have been before me in Jerusalem. Yes, my heart had great experience and wisdom and knowledge and I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. 
I perceived that this also was a vexation of the Spirit. Not only did I want to know everything about God, I wanted to know everything about what the world had to offer, all of his desires. And he went after him. And the, the theme of Ecclesiastes is that was a bad choice. And in Kings, we don't get that deep into it. But verse 3 of our chapter. And the Lord said to him, I've heard your prayer and your supplication that you've made before me, and I've consecrated this house which you've built to put my name there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Now, if you walk before me as your father David walked, in integrity of heart and in uprightness, to do according to all that I've commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. So there's a promise. Promise has a couple ifs in it. God rarely visits people twice in the Bible. That makes Solomon pretty exceptional, that God talks to him more than once. He still doesn't hit the... Uh, Moses' number, and if you count Adam in the garden prior to the fall, Adam walked and talked with God every day. So he says, I've heard your prayer. That's back in chapter 8. We saw that. Uh, this is the um, first mention in the Bible that God hears prayers. It's kind of interesting. We got all the way to 1 Kings before we had God actually say that he heard a prayer. In the rest of the Bible, it's assumed that a prayer was heard. But here God has to tell Solomon that the prayer was heard. And I don't know if there's tons of significance to that. We can talk afterwards. But there's a, it's a new way of saying it in part because the relationship between Solomon and God is changing a little bit. There's something there. So God's doing something new. So the prayer that Solomon gave get back in chapter 8 was also a corporate prayer. Remember he prayed for all of Israel and asked everybody to pray with him. So it wasn't an in-the-closet prayer. It was a big open prayer. So when he says... I've heard your prayer. It could be that that's a plural use of the word your. And again, in the Hebrew, it's not there. So it could be more like, I've heard the prayer of Israel and what you are asking for as a kingdom. And that corporate prayer gets heard. First Chronicles 30, 27 has the same kind of concept. We make a request and then we wait on the Lord. And it says after a time, God comes back and says it. So we don't know the amount of time between the prayer in chapter 8 and the answer that we get here. But it says to us to some degree that there's a, there could be a gap there. So this idea of hearing a prayer gets mentioned twice in the New Testament. It's when God is doing something totally different that he, he enters in and says, I've heard a prayer. So God changes the game with the Solomon and the temple because now they're not a nomadic tabernacle kingdom. He changes the relationship. And in that, he comes to this person, Solomon, and says, I've heard your prayer. He's answering the prayers of his people. Zacharias, 400 years, they haven't heard anything from God. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 13, God shows up to Zacharias in the temple and he meets Zacharias and says, I've heard your prayer. And, it, it, and it's to change the game. John the Baptist is going to be born unto Zacharias and God lets Zacharias know that that's going to happen. The next time it happens is um, Cornelius, a Gentile, has, has God come to him and tell him that Peter's going to show up? In Acts chapter 10, God changes the game. That religion of Judaism is about to be expanded to all the Gentiles. And God shows up and tells Peter to get out and do something. And he meets Cornelius and says, I'm sending Peter to your house and I've heard your prayer. God's going to start a new kind of ministry with that, like just like he's doing here. So he says, I've consecrated. This is an interesting thing in that humans don't consecrate things. God does. 
We can ask for things to be consecrated, but God does it. We consecrate things that we have responsibility for. So I can say take a time every day and say I'm going to consecrate, set apart 30 minutes a day for devotions. But if that's to be a holy experience, God's got to show up at that too. So Solomon did the work of building the temple. He built it. He put in his time and his effort. But God says, I separate that thing that you did. I consecrate that thing that you did. So God puts worth on the building and ascribes worth. And I think that's true of all of our efforts in the kingdom. We can do things, but if God doesn't show up to anoint them, they're kind of worthless. And in this sense, Solomon could have just built a giant temple that was pretty worthless. But God's like, this is, I'm going to ascribe worth to this temple. I'm going to put value here. My name's going to be there. And then in verse 4, now if. So now when you put the word now at the beginning of verse 4, we're talking about a current work. What's next for Solomon? What's next is he's supposed to walk the rest of his life. It says, walk before me. In the Hebrew, that's yalak panim. I love the word panim. It means in the face of as though you're touching noses. So when it, it, God came before Moses, it's panim, came in the face of Moses. When, in the Old Testament, when it talks about the Israelites sinning, God says, you sinned in my face, right? You did it right up close to me. We have a dog that doesn't know boundaries or distance. That dog comes up and licks you panim, gets right up in your face, puts his little cold nose right on you. Uh, when God is in my face, I don't have room or distance for sin or those kinds of things. And God's asking Solomon, you've done this big work for me, what I'm asking for you right now, walk in my face. Just walk with me. And this is a gift. Like Solomon could just spend the rest of his life chilling out, walking with God at God's command. And if he just does that, God's going to bless his inheritance on that throne forever. God's going to bless that throne forever either way. Um, but that idea of that command to walk in the face of God. Verse 6. But if you or your sons at all turn from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes which I've set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I've given them and this house which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. Israel will be a proverb and a byword amongst all the peoples. We think of the word proverb as a good thing because we have the book of Proverbs which is full of good advice. But this isn't a good thing in this context. To be a proverb is to be like that joke we tell. Like that, and we have those, like things hit the news and you get this bad example of something and they become a proverb. Oh, that's like having the glove in your car like O.J. Simpson. Like we know the reference, maybe I'm dating myself on that one. But there, Mandy, I'm dating myself on that one? Okay, so, okay, we'll keep going. Um, the idea of being a proverb here is not a good thing. I think it's interesting that God says, if you follow my commands, all these good things are going to happen. And then God knows that Solomon's going to screw this up. So he also lets Solomon know the bad things that are going to happen. He made the same kind of promise to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David. He does the same kind of thing. You do it my way, your life's going to be better. You don't do it my way, your life's going to suck. And that's the short story of God's arrangement with humanity. There is a way that leads to life that he's laid out for us. If we choose to ignore it and do our own thing, it leads to everything but life. And it's, it's one of those things where he, he says all these blessings, Israel having its own land, Israel having its own temple. God's saying, like, it's not about the land and it's not about the temple. If you put your heart in some other place, I'm going to cut off Israel from the land. It's a blessing, but it's not the most important thing. 
right? I love that we have the blessing of a place to meet, but let's say Anchor kicked us out next week. We don't need a, we don't, it's not about the building. We can meet anywhere we want. Actually, we're not going to meet here next week, right? But it, the place that we meet is not as important to God as that we meet with him and we spend time with him. Same thing's true of the, uh, the house, the temple that he's built. In verse 7, the house that I've built or consecrated for my name, I'll cast it out of my sight. He, again, he's saying, like, this temple's wonderful. It's glorious. It brings honor to God. But boy, if that thing ever takes away from the honor of God, that thing goes away. And even all the ways in which God has woven history together to make this temple happen, who cares? I'll decimate that thing if my name's not being honored. And I'll get it off the earth because he doesn't want it in his face. Same thing's true of our lives. I mean, I don't know how much you want to extend that. Whatever good God's doing in our life, he should get the glory for it. If he's not getting the glory in our life for what's going on, he doesn't need to keep blessing us. That's terrifying. I like my blessings. I'm greedy for my blessings. So I'll keep giving honor to God for those things that happen. So in reality, this be, the verses 6 and 7 become prophetic. They do screw it up. Like as we go through Kings and Chronicles, that's the narrative of Israel. They keep botching it up. They get hauled off to Babylon, and this temple of Solomon actually does get tore down. They rip the thing apart. God explains why in verse 8. Here's why he's going to do that. And as for this house, which is exalted, everyone passes by it, and they'll be astonished and will hiss and say, why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? Then they will answer, because they forsook the Lord their God who brought, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and have embraced other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this calamity on them. We don't serve little idols unless you're an action figure person. I mean, we don't really, it's hard for us to, to associate with that, but it's important to understand what those pagan idols stood for. Right? Moloch stood for power, prestige, force. Ashtaroth stood for sex and lust. Her, her posts were easy to look at. Right? When you found an Ashtaroth pole, that's what it was. And they, the, the, So you look at these things and you, you see what they were worshipping. Baal was a worship of fertility and wealth. So when you see the worship of the Baals, these are people worshipping money. And the accumulation of money meant Baal was with you. Right? And so if you had lots of sheep, then Baal was with you. I'll keep reading. It's... <laughs> those things that they worship, those things that God says to not put your life in, they're dead ends. Pride, lust, greed, they're dead ends. They don't go anywhere. But if you want to worship those things, don't expect God to be with you as you walk through your life. It's super simple. And it hasn't really changed. We just don't have little action figures and statues that we build for each of these things. Or do we? I, I don't know. Maybe we do. God is not threatened by bringing calamity on his children. I like this idea. It doesn't bother God to bring trials into his children's life because he sees the good that that does over time. Right? And I think that's kind of fun. I just still remember, like, as the kids were growing up, there were things where mom and I could see that they were about to get into a calamity, and then we'd ask the question, will it kill them? Okay, then let's let them do it. Let's let them figure this out for themselves. And I think sometimes God walks us through trials so that we can figure things out. Or at least, if we're wise, we start learning. And we get this list of other works that Solomon's going to do. As we move forward from here, we're going to see that each one of these other works that Solomon spends his time on 
Every single one of them has an element that if we've read the law should raise our eyebrows. What's cool about the histories is it doesn't overtly say, and this was wrong. It trusts that you know the law well enough to be able to point that out. And again, this goes back to little rabbi school. They would read through a chapter like the rest of this one in 10, and then they would ask the little rabbi students, did Solomon do that right? Did he do it wrong? Where in the law? Because they're trying to teach them how to judge and discern what good behavior is and what bad behavior is. Every one of these things sounds like a pretty good thing, but we, woven into it very carefully is something that sh we should be flagged by. Now, most of you have gone through the law because we're going chapter by chapter, so this is a good test for you, right? This is the, actually, this is like the final at the end of the Torah. Can you take this and, and apply the Torah to these situations? So a worldly read of this works just fine. So let's say you're not a believer and you're just reading 1 Kings 8. You read through this and you're like, wow, Solomon was blessed. Well, that's an answer to the promise God gave. God said he would be blessed. And you could just read this and go, man, Solomon was wealthy and he had money and he was super blessed. And you just read it with worldly eyes. It works just like it's supposed to. But if you read this with godly eyes, you keep reading each one of these and a, something kind of builds up and you're going, oh, no, that wasn't right. Ooh, that wasn't right. And each one gets a little bit worse to where you're like, Solomon, no, you're screwing it all up. But from a worldly sense, they get better and better and better. With godly lenses, these get worse and worse and worse. So we'll dig into them here. You ready? All right. <laughs> I got to note it here because... I was trying to think, like, what's that feeling when you're like, no, 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 this is getting worse. And the best thing I could think of was old Scooby-Doo episodes. When at the so if you've ever watched Scooby-Doo, a big ghost shows up, and then they're like, oh, shoot, there's a ghost. And then they make this, they say, we should split up. And we should, we should go this way and that way and check out all these different things and find clues so we can figure out what's going on with this ghost. And inevitably, they split up Shaggy and Scooby-Doo, and you just think, oh, no, that's a bad decision. These two are going to really botch it up. And then you have the little chase scene. But that's, again, maybe dating myself if you don't watch Scooby-Doo. I'm OK with that. So here's our Scooby-Doo with Solomon. Verse 10, now it happened at the end of 20 years. It took 20 years to build the temple, the administrative offices, and, the and, the, and all the things that we've done so far. So 20 years have passed. When Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house, Hiram, the king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress and gold as much as he desired. Remember, he made that deal with the other king? That Solomon had then gave Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. Well, that's a, wait a sec. Then Hiram went from Tyre to see the cities which Solomon had given him, but they did not please him. So he said, what kind of cities are these that you've given me, my brother? And then he called the land of Cable, which Cable in the, in the language means good for nothing, right? So he gave him the land of Cable, and he called it that to this day. And then Hiram sent the king 120 talents of gold, which is close to $200 million. International relations, they made a deal. The other end of that deal was you're going to give Israelite cities away to a pagan culture? What was David's life's mission? What was Joshua commanded to do? So you're just kind of like, well, wait a second. Well, we'll justify that. In a worldly sense, maybe they were empty cities because people had just left. There weren't enough Israelites. So maybe this was like a placeholder where you got a friendly Gentile nation occupying cities until the Israelites could move into them, maybe. So either way, little pink flag there. Uh, we should note that 
it's not necessarily a good thing that Gentiles are now coming in to the land and occupying these cities. Um, the other piece here is you get this sense that Hiram's not happy with what he got because he called them good for nothing. That's where I get that sense from. In other words, Solomon's dealing in international trade with shrewdness instead of generosity. This is different than we read in the last chapters, right? That there isn't just an opulence, just, I love you guys, I'm going to take care of you. When you deal with a God person, you should feel like you always got the better end of the bargain, right? Because God people just don't care about it that much. We're not good negotiators, right? But Solomon here is playing shrewdly, and that doesn't feel like there's something off there. And then you get to verse 15. And this is the reason for the labor force which Solomon raised to build the house of the Lord, his own house, the Milo, a construction project we don't have any other reference to, the wall of Jerusalem, Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. This is the first mention of Milo. Some people think it's Milo, the wall of, like they named the walls, right? Sometimes you build a building and you call it like the Louvre and you give it a name and these walls were so significant. They called them the Milo, uh, which is a stitch. Um, then you get to these three cities, Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. Hazor is actually kind of three fortresses together that guard the entrance of Israel. They've dug them up archaeologically. They know right where these are. Um, Megiddo is what we familiarly call Armageddon. It's right in the Jezreel Valley. So the Hazor guards the northern Golan Heights. If you want to come in from the north, you've got to come past Hazor. If you want to come in from the east, you have to come through the Jezreel Valley. It's how the, the Israelites crossed over the Jordan. And so to put a fortress in Armageddon, or Megiddo, is the central valley. It protects the food source for Israel. This is where they grow their food. Then you get to the southern foothills of Ephraim. That's where Gezer is. So when it mentions those three places, those are likely fortresses that guarded each of the entrance points for the land of Israel. And he built those up. They all protect the trade routes. Verse 16, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, has gone up and taken Gezer and burned it with fire, had killed the Canaanites who dwelt in the city, and had given it as a dowry to his daughter Solomon's wife. So they're explaining in verse 16 how Solomon got control of Gezer. Just an added note for us. And Solomon built Gezer, lower Beth-Horon, Baalath, Tadmor in the wilderness, and in the land of Judah. All of these things in verses 15 through 17 are strongholds. Should a king of Israel be building strongholds and security for himself, putting his trust in brick and mortar versus his trust in the Lord? Or is this another pink flag? Again, you get that sense of, well, that doesn't sound quite right. What's he doing there? David proclaimed in 2 Samuel 22, verse 3, that the God of my strength in whom I put my trust he is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. David didn't build strongholds. His stronghold was God, and that's how he presented it. That's what he taught his son. But his son's departing from that plan as we read these verses. You get to verse 19. All the storage cities that Solomon had, cities for his chariots and cities for his cavalry, and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and all the land of his dominion. Ah, oh, this is, what a king, man. He's got entire cities that house the Calvary. Entire cities that house the places. These locations are likely, uh, 
armories. So it's the first time in history you see a king building armories, just where they store their stuff. And because they're spread around the country, that diffuses the army or the military so Solomon doesn't have to worry about Joab taking his kingdom. Right? It's likely a reaction to how Joab and David interacted. And so he separates these military resources. Verse 20, all the people who were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, who were not the children of Israel, that is their descendants who were left in the land after them, whom the children of Israel had not been able to destroy completely. From these, what should Solomon do with these folks from the law? Do you guys remember? What were they supposed to do with pagan idol worshipers? Drive them out. Give, relocate them. Get them new homes. This was going to be a place set aside for God's people. But this isn't what Solomon does. Verse 21 is almost tragic. From, from these, Solomon raised forced labor as it is to the day. So Israel, for the first time, makes slaves. This is kind of horrible because they were slaves. They were oppressed. They know what that feels like. Now they're doing it to other weaker people than themselves. They're using their power to take power. And people will read this verse and be like, see, look at how evil the Israelites were. This is a God that agrees with forced labor. That is absolutely not what this passage says. This is in the middle of a set of things that Solomon's doing wrong. And one of those things he does wrong is he takes forced slaves. So he's giving into this compromise. He's building fortresses for his security. He's building things that give pride and, and reputation to himself. And now he's building slave forces. That's kind of crazy. Notice that this is happening after the temple was built. That's a redeeming situation. The temple was built with paid workforce. But these, this is happening after that. The law makes no account for slaves or forced labor. Just as a reminder... Jeremiah 34.10 is one of the great sins of Israel getting founded right here in this chapter. Now when all the princes and all the people who had entered into the covenant heard that everyone should set free his male and female slaves, that no one should keep in bondage anymore, they obeyed and they let them go. When God's people had a revival in Jeremiah, one of the first things they did is they released all these slaves. That means this is a curse unto Israel for hundreds of years. And the best thing they could do is just say, we're done with slavery and walk away from it. Yet humans, we keep coming back to it. If we can't make slaves this way, we make them this way. We just want people doing work for us for the rest of their lives. How do we, en how do we entrap them? Becomes a worldly mentality that Solomon compromises on. Here's another one, verse 22. But of the children of Israel, Solomon made no forced laborers. Well, that justifies it. We are not going to be oppressed, but we can oppress others, right? Because they were men of war and servants and his officers, his captains, his commanders and his chariots and his cavalry. And others were chief of the officials who were over Solomon's work, 550 who ruled over the people who did work. So I would call this sloth. It's okay for other people to do our work, but we can't go and pick up our own mess and do our own work. We're going to get other people to do that. So he makes Israel the oppressors and the overseers of the Gentiles. That was not God's plan for the Gentiles. They also weren't supposed to keep horses and chariots. Do you remember that? 
directly Deuteronomy 17, 16. Here, it says it directly. You shall not multiply horses to himself, talking about the king of Israel, nor, the, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that he should multiply horses. It's odd that God put that weird little law in. When you're going to have a king of Israel, here's the laws they should follow. Solomon becoming an established king of Israel immediately starts breaking every one of those laws. I'm going to keep going because it's all about this king of Israel. You shall henceforth return no more that way to, to Egypt. Uh, look at verse 24. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself that his heart not turn away, chapter 10. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. Don't multiply your army. Don't multiply a harem. Don't multiply your wealth. Yet Solomon was given all this wealth. It all came into his storehouses, but he's going to multiply it. It's not good enough to just be rich. He wants to be super rich. It's not like you don't have to, you can see that on the news. It's not good enough to be wealthy. We want to control the world. And we have a lot of very rich people doing that right now. Verse 24, but Pharaoh's daughter came up from the city of David to her house, which Solomon had built for her. And then he built the Milo. They mention, we've talked about his Egyptian wife before. Here they're mentioning it in the middle of lists of things. And in context, it's like at this point, the focus isn't just a diplomatic relationship with Egypt, but that he brought Egypt into his house. And she came with Egyptian gods. She brings them back home. Okay, then you get to, we're going to keep going on this list. Again, this is Scooby-Doo-like. Oh, this is bad. Verse 25, now three times a year Solomon offered burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar which he had built for the Lord. Which, and, and he burned incense with them on the altar that was before the Lord, so he finished the temple. That's an odd thing to put on this list. What's wrong with the picture? Is he a Levite? Should he be making offerings? Or is this something God's tolerating in honor of David and in honor of the work that he did earlier in his life? But he's some people would read this and say, ooh, look, 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 we get a typology of a, a priest king, right? And Jesus is a priest king. And David was a priest king. And Melchizedek was a priest king. And Solomon's just another priest king. The problem is he's never told by God to do this. David was told to build an altar and make offering on it. Abraham was told to build an altar and make an offering on it. Moses was told to build, an, Solomon was never told to do that. He was told to build the temple for which there was a Leviticus system to carry out the work of it. And this is in the middle of a list of things that to a, a law-abiding reader would go, uh-oh, what's going on there? So he's taking it upon himself to take that, throne, that position at the temple. That's scary. Um, one wonders why he's not fried on the spot for it, and, and you, you might think it's because God's honoring the position of the king, even though the king is doing things that are wrong. How long will God be patient with that is the question. Verse 26, King Solomon built a fleet of ships at Ezion Geber, which is near Elath, on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom, beautiful country. Then Hiram sent his servants with the fleet, seamen who knew the sea, to work with the servants of Solomon. And they went to Ophir and acquired 420 talents of gold from there, and they brought it to Solomon. He's multiplying gold for himself. Why? Does he really need more money than what we saw last week? So same thing as chariots. The land of Ophir, this is kind of an interesting one. The historians get screwed up on where Ophir is. Like that's a really tough place to locate. There's two possibilities of where they mine gold and you'd need ships to get to them. 
So one spot for Ophir, they believe that they're traveling either to other parts of Arabia, like they're going down and around the Arabian Peninsula, but another option for Ophir is that they're actually sailing to India and that the land of Ophir was the land of India. Another clue on that is that they're bringing back spices from that area too, which we'll get to in, I think, Chronicles. Um, so there's just, just this thought of Solomon building an international trade network, but on this particular list, it's not for the purpose of doing God's work, like with the temple, when they were getting tin and bronze through the shipping. For this one, the express purpose, verse 28, is to bring gold back to King Solomon. So gold becomes flooded in the market. So all of these things, you could read them and say, man, Solomon, he's rocking it as a king. He's got, he's building wealth, power, prestige. But to anybody that reads the law, you're going, oh, no, 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 no. This is all wrong. There's something wrong here. And then you get the Queen of Sheba story. This is great. Like, you want worldly recognition? Queen of Sheba shows up? You have arrived by the world's standards. So just a lens to put on that. Um, now, when the Queen of Sheba, chapter 10, when the Queen of Sheba heard the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. This is what they did in the ancient world. This was like, they still kind of did this by the rabbinical era. One of the ways of teaching and learning was called uh, uh, like a question and answer or a Socratic method. You would post a question, they would try to answer it, and then you'd ask another question, and in doing that, you dig down. And we call that Socratic method. Um, Socrates doesn't show up for a while, but that's kind of the method that's there, and it started in the ancient world. We see it in Persian documents, Babylonian documents. Uh, the Egyptians, you just get hieroglyphics, so it's hard to tell, but um, this was just a way to test someone's wisdom. So she came to Jerusalem with a very great ret retinue. How do you say that? Retinue? Retwene? With camels that bore spices, very much gold, precious stones. When she came to Solomon, she spoke with them about all that was in her heart. Again, you get two royal figures showing up. Sheba is in an area that we today call Yemen. Uh, it is a spice factory. There is wealth and prosperity. At this period in history, by their records, this was a golden age for the land of Sheba. So they were at their height. This is their famous history. Sheba was one of their greatest kings that they had. Um, and, and so you can look at those records and histories if you want to. She comes clearly with a delegation. This is how royal officers would come to other kingdoms. The purpose of all these gifts was to say you're better off not attacking our territory because we're just going to give you tons of gifts and you don't even have to attack us. So if Solomon's pleased with the gifts, then why would he pay for an army to go down and take more? So that's kind of in the ancient world why they would bring these opulent gifts. It was to impress the other royal dignitary. But you don't want to give too much because if you give too much, they might start thinking like Babylon. They're like, Babylon has to go see the storehouses. They wanted to know how much Israel had because the gifts weren't enough for the Babylonians. They saw that a nation had any kind of wealth. That's when they got their armies and started attacking them. Uh, but at this period in history, that's, that kind of dates this a little bit. So it highlights the intellectual interest that Sheba wanted more from Solomon than just gifts and diplomatic connections. She came because she wanted to test his knowledge. So he shares his knowledge through this Q&A thing. Verse 3, Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing so difficult for the king that he could not explain it to her. That's an indication of wisdom and intellect. 
And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he'd built, the food at his table, the seating of his servants, interesting, and the, the service of his waiters and their apparel, his cup bearers and the entryway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. That's an interesting turn of phrase too. This is an odd passage. Answering all their questions, we've talked about that. The way the servants are dressed matters. And I think this is really cool. This has great Jesus implications. If the servants are dressed well, that speaks to the master. And I'm not talking about fashion here, right? This is talking about fashion. But in a spiritual sense, when we present ourselves as honorable to others, that speaks well of who we serve. Well, don't look at me. I'm just a servant, right? I'm not the one to look at. Look at my king. And so when she comes in and she sees the order, the seating of the service, the way that they served, and how they appeared, their apparel, those three elements impressed her. So she's a non-Israelite coming into the kingdom of God that God's made, and she's impressed with the order that she sees there. This is normal and ordinary. Well, this isn't freak-like. We've actually had people say that that visit our Bible study. You guys aren't nuts. This is just actually kind of normal. The way you heard about it, you'd think it was there was fireworks and everything else, but you guys are just kind of normal human beings. She's impressed with the order, the way that they do it. If servants serve with a joyful heart, what does that say about the master? You know, in Egypt, the servants come in and they got chains and they're all weird and malnourished. Like, that's embarrassing for the master because you're, you're having to force these people to serve, right? Forced labor is not impressive, but laborers that love what they're doing and do it with a joyful heart, you can't force that. You can't force people to be joyful with their service. When you got people just joyfully serving, what a blessing to the kingdom. What does that say about our master? And then the, the way in which they're dressed or carry themselves says that Solomon takes care of the people working for him. So in a worldly sense, he's got happy employees. And Sheba's looking at that going, this must be a great place to work. These employees love you. They love what they're doing and they do it with great honor. Like when you walk up to like a Batman's house and Alfred answers the door, he speaks with an accent. Well, you know, and, and you walk in and what can I take your coats? What can I do? And that he's serving because he loves the family, right? And I'm, I'm sure there's other butlers to think of, but you've got to remember my reduced middle school brain. When Alfred presents himself as honorable and he's wearing the little suit with the little bow tie, he cares about who he's serving. And that's part of the narrative in Batman is Alfred loves the father of Bruce Wayne. And because of his love for the father, he serves the son with his entire life. It's a great image of service. Serves with how he looks, how he carries himself, and the joy with which he does it. So you never thought we were going to get from Queen of Sheba to Batman that quick, did you? I didn't. That's actually not my notes. So we'll keep going. Uh, verse 6, then she said to the king, it was a true report that I heard on my own land about your words and wisdom. Man, I heard about you. It's all true. It's crazy. Verse 7, however, I did not believe the words until I came and saw with my own eyes. And indeed, the half wasn't even told to me. Your wisdom and prosperity exceed the fame which I had heard. You are famous, Solomon. Happy are your men, happy are the, these your servants who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you, setting you on the throne of Israel. 
Because the Lord has loved Israel forever, therefore he's made you king to do justice and righteousness. Well, that's a really great thing to say about somebody. But notice how Solomon in these compliments, notice how Solomon's sharing the glory with God himself. God was smart to put you on the throne, right? And there's, it's just one of those things where it's like a little bit off. But, you know, again, with the plain reading of it too, just a simple reading of this, she's basically saying, wow, God has really blessed this country. And that's a perfectly okay way to read this. Reading it in, con in, in connection to these other, like, offsetting, disturbing breakings of the laws. God, you could read this also, and I think this is perfectly okay, that Solomon's sharing the glory with God right now. He's taken some of that pride that comes with this position. You don't see that Solomon says, no, 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 this is all God, right? And he doesn't delight in me particularly. He delighted in my father, David. Or he delights in whoever sits on this throne because we're his people, and I'm just serving. I'm, I'm, I'm the king of Israel, yes, but God can raise up anybody to be king of Israel. He raised up my dad out of obscurity. You don't see Solomon say anything like that. Yet we've read all that. But this fulfills a promise from God. And, and again, I think that's part of why this is in here too, is this is the conclusion of a prophecy we heard back in Deuteronomy 28, promise made to Moses. It shall come to pass if you did diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe and carefully all his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all nations on the earth, that all people of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord and that they shall be afraid of you. Everybody on earth is going to see that Israel is truly blessed by God. So when Queen of Sheba makes this statement, I think she unwittingly fulfills a prophecy because we see evidence in the Bible that that actually happened. So there's only been one generation, David, between the Philistines nearly eradicating Israel. Like they had pushed Saul so far back, Israel was about to lose all territory under Saul. So in one generation, you went from almost being eradicated to being the greatest nation on the planet. And I honestly think six through uh, nine, that's kind of what this is about, is recognition that Israel has arrived as one of the most opulent, powerful nations in the planet. In one generation, God just did that. I don't think England knew what hit them when the colonies revolted and went away. And within only a couple generations, they were looking at America as allies and a, a full nation state. How did that happen so quickly? So this springs this idea. I'll come back to it. Those that are obedient to God create an honor to God just in their obedience, nothing else. Regardless of blessing, even the servants are an honor to God, even though they're not personally rich, but because they serve with a, a glorified heart and a joyful heart, they bring glory to their God. Isn't that true of every interaction we have with anybody? If we're decent, kind human beings, that's one thing, but if we glorify God in every interaction we have with people, that brings honor to our King and to our Lord. So this isn't necessarily a conversion for the Queen of Sheba, but clearly the Queen of Sheba is recognizing the God Yahweh as blessing Israel. That's a good step, right? And we don't see any evidence that she then began to worship Yahweh, but she's at least saying like, and I think sometimes we have interactions like this, where people say like, your God seems to be pretty special, and she actually uses your God right? Your God seems to be okay. I think that's a step towards conversion, that before people are going to accept Christ as their Savior, they have to accept that the servants are kind of okay, 
that I kind of want to hear what those servants have to say. And when that happens, that's actually a step to it. I'll come to your stupid Bible study, but I'm not worshiping your God yet. I'm just honoring you because I like you. So I'll come with you once. And then I think, I hope, sometimes when the Queen of Sheba or people like that take that step, then they come and they go, wow, you guys are for real. Look at how you keep things in order. You're kind of normal people. You actually like what you're doing. And this is a total blessing. So the Queen of Sheba leaves Solomon's house and she's like, this was a total blessing. You guys are awesome. She gives Solomon gifts, verse 10. She gave the king 120 talents of gold, spices in great quantity, and precious stones, and there never again came such abundance as the spices as the Queen of Sheba gave to Solomon. I like that the top thing on the list of his wealth is that he had great food with good spices on it. You know, I see, but you guys laugh, but I keep seeing food seems to be the most important thing. It's more important than all the other stuff. She honors Solomon. She's impressed. She gives gift. Uh, but wait, there's a rest of the story on this. Here's the rest of the story. Jesus uses the Queen of Sheba when he's teaching his disciples. So he brings this example up. It's kind of a short example. Matthew chapter 12, if you want to click or flip, he says the, the Queen of Sheba is the example of a seeker. Not a believer, but somebody seeking out their faith. And he uses the Queen of Sheba as an example. The Queen of the South will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is with you here. He actually uses the Queen of Sheba as a condemnation against the people that aren't listening to him, right? Queen of Sheba went to hear Solomon's wisdom, and she left impressed. You're hearing from the Son of God himself, and you're not impressed. Who has the right to condemn them? The Queen of the South. So I think that's a good rest of the story because in this chapter, it looks like she's a seeker. There's no evidence of conversion, but Jesus seems to talk about her like she's on the right team at the end of time. Maybe she did convert. We don't know. Good discussion. She came so far. She took so many great pains. She gave such honor, and, and it's because she got such peace and joy out of his household. How, in today's world, we expect to do nothing, make no efforts, take no journeys, and the kingdom of God just gets put in our lap, super easy peasy. How weak are we compared to the Queen of Sheba? Well, you needed everything handed to you on a silver plater. The Queen of Sheba brought her gifts to Solomon because she was so excited about what was going on. She heard about it. She brought it. She came. She left. She went through great efforts to make this journey to see Solomon. And yet we have people today that won't even lift up a book and read it to find out more about their Jesus. It's crazy how what it, it, her position to condemn people in our generation is perfect because she can say, look, I did everything to get closer to God. You've done nothing. So she stands in judgment according to Jesus. She will be one of the people that testifies against lazy people. Verse 11, also the ships of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought great quantities of alum, wood and precious stones from Ophir. And the king made steps of the alum wood for the house of the Lord, for the king's house, also harps and stringed instruments for singers, which is what lends itself to India, because they didn't have a lot of that going on in Arabia at this period in history. Uh, there never again came such alum wood, nor has there been seen to this day. Uh, blessings from all over the world come into Solomon's court. Verse 13. Now Solomon gave the Queen of Sheba all she desired, 
whatever she asked besides what Solomon had given her according to the royal generosity. So she turned and went to her own country, she and her servants. I think this end point is what she came and asked was for wisdom. So when it says he gave her all she desired, we've already seen what she desired. She desired wisdom. It's possible he sent with her copies of the Proverbs. It's possible this is where he started writing down Ecclesiastes. Because what she asked for was wisdom, and he gave that to her in addition, verse 13, to the, royal, the typical royal generosity. So the typical royal generosity is all those gifts you give to another dignitary. But he gave something in addition to that. So some people think this is where he started writing things down. And that's why the Queen of Sheba is so important. Because he wanted her to have a documentation she could take with her. And then that copy goes right into there. Um, this honor that she came and gave all this honor to Solomon, I think in verse 13 is really interesting because Solomon outgave her. And we get a principle in the Bible that gets reinforced in Malachi. And that's this, you've heard the phrase, you can't outgive God. Like Sheba brings everything she possibly can to Solomon and he gives her everything she desires. And she leaves fuller than she came. It's also a principle in the temple and in the feast tradition when they had... Um, peace offerings, you would come and give your offering, but you went home, you filled your guts over the next three days you, with everything you could eat, and then you went home with leftovers. So this idea of getting more than what you bring. Malachi 3.10, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there might be food in my house and try me in this now. Literally, it's the only thing that God asks for us to test him in. Try me in this now, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. Try it. Try giving to God what's God's and see if you don't come out ahead. I always feel that way at church. I give him my time and I leave feeling like I gained time. It's a weird thing. Sherry tested that last year. Did you end up getting okay grades or did you fail out? She did okay. Uh, what's the royal generosity of Jesus? What treasure awaits if we, if we look at Jesus through this lens, she gives a gift, Solomon gives everything back. And then Psalm 50, 23. I won't even go easy and just cite the New Testament. I'll go Old Testament on this. Whoever offers praise glorifies me. And to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. What God promises in return for what we give him is salvation. That's the gift. So there's nothing we can give that exceeds that return on the gift. We give to God our hearts. He gives us salvation for eternity. That's a good trade, folks. You can't get a better deal than that. We simply offer him to obey his commands and walk before him. And he says, I'll give you the storehouses of heaven. I'll give you blessings. And he's not talking about money. I mean, that's the problem with Solomon. He thought money was the, the answer. But that's not what Jesus promises. Woman at the well says she's thirsty and he says, if you even knew what I had to offer you, you wouldn't be offer, asking for water. You'd be asking for the living water that I have to offer. That heart that you have in your chest that's thick and hard because it's, it's not alive, I can change that. I can give you living water that goes abundantly forever. You want your heart to change? Ask me for it. Test me in this and see if I won't overflow your heart with everything. It's beautiful. Back in our chapter, verse 14, the weight of gold that came to Solomon yearly, get, get this, if this isn't a red flag, I don't know what is. 
The weight of the gold that came to Solomon yearly was 666 talents of gold. That is the number 666. And, I, and if you know anything about the word of God, heck, if you even watch The Exorcist or Damien or horror movies, 666 is like demon number. Where do we get that from? Well, we get that from Solomon getting filthy, stinking rich. In, in, in uh, Gematria, for the Hebrews, the number six is human. It means human. And 666 three times means completely human. It's of this world. It's all the stuff of this world. That's 666. So if you look at that word and when you see it written like this, that is a, it's an absolutely a narrative use of a number. The weight of gold that came to Solomon yearly was perfectly human, completely human, right? We're not talking about seven sixes. We're talking about three sixes, completely human, not divinely perfected. It's man, 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 oh man, 100 100 and uh, humanly hundred and humanly human. In verse 15, it says plus more, which adds more weight to the use of this number. So he made 666, and then in verse 15, besides that, from the traveling merchants, from the income of traders, from the kings of Arabia and all the governors of the country. In other words, he made lots more than 666, but we're going to just use the number 666 here. So it should stand out like a giant red flag to the little Jewish readers. 600,000 with Moses gets used in Numbers 11.21. There's 600 men with the judges of Saul and David. Like the, the, This use of 600 is all over the place. This is the first time we see actually 666. In, in, if you count in for inflation and convert it, this is over a billion dollars a year coming into Solomon's pocket. In other words, he's absolutely rich. The only other use of the number 666, just to help you with this, is coming out of the book of Revelation, chapter 13, verse 18. There's only two places in the Bible that use 666. One is right here, seems kind of innocuous, and then you get it in Revelation. Here is wisdom, also associated with Solomon. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man, and his number is... Six, six, six. Honestly, like I've watched too many horror movies when I was a kid, and they would use that. They'd put the little quote up at the front of the movie, and then it would fade out, and then you'd start with a horror movie. And I shouldn't even say that because you're starting to see the old me a lot more. But the number six, six, six. Here it's just said Solomon was filthy, stinking rich. He had the whole world. And that whole world is not only is it just not important, it actually does something wrong. That much wealth corrupts people. And it, it's not always a good thing to get that wealthy. So when people point to Solomon as an example of God blesses people with money, uh-huh, and it broke the man. Keep reading where he gets ascribed the number 666. I didn't hear this in Sunday school. Like, they skipped that verse very conveniently. Oh, Solomon's just blessed like crazy by the Lord. But that blessing is the blessing of earth. After a list of things that he's done where he's overtly broken the law, piling up chariots, piling up wives, shipping in money from Ophir, dealing unjustly with a friend and an ally and not, being, not treating them right, taking glory for himself that he should have pointed back to the Lord. All these things that he's failing in, and you're like, oh, come on, Solomon. We wanted another hero like David. Verse 15, 16. And King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold, 600 shekels of 
gold went into each shield, and he made 300 shields of hammered gold. Th uh, three minus of gold went into each shield, and the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. I started to look up how much these shields were worth. Let's just say they're worth a ton of money. Right? He had so much gold, he had to put it somewhere. So he cast them into shields. And you'd say, oh, he's building an armory. No, shields are supposed to be hard and durable when they take a sword hit. Gold is soft and malleable. Shields are supposed to be light so you can actually lift them and use them on the battlefield. Gold is notoriously heavy. Heavy, soft shields are never used in combat. These are decorative shields. And they're just there to show off how, mon how much money he has. So if there's a question as to whether or not God can deliver on worldly wealth, what we get out of these chapters is, yeah, God can provide worldly wealth. He can provide it to where it's coming out your ears and you're carving shields of gold. And that's not fields of gold. It's not a sting song. It's shields of gold. And, and God can, when he wants to, provide such wealth that this world can't even understand it. God can do that, yep, but it's a shadow of what heaven can be. It's just a fraction of what he promises us in addition to these things. Verse 18. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it. I couldn't get the image. Like, There's a show on one of the cable channels, and when they put up the ad, they got like a throne on the front of it. It's got all these shields pointing, or the, not shields, but swords going out of it. What's the name of the show? Game of Thrones? It's a, with Solomon, it's no game. So and he's building this throne on ivory. Thrones are, this is a decorative throne, which brings more glory to his seat than it does to his God, right? When the world builds the most cool throne they can think of, it's made out of swords. When God builds the, most th the throne he can think of, it's built out of two pieces of wood where he hangs himself on it, right? But the world comes up with different kinds of thrones that look a lot cooler in an art piece. He overlaid it with pure gold, the ivory, by the way, had to come from outside Israel. They didn't have a lot of elephants walking around. Another indication that he's doing trade with India, at least, or even Indonesia further away. The throne had six steps, and the top of the throne was as round at the back, and there were armrests on either side of the place to seat, and two lions stood besides the armrests, the lions of Judah. This is an intimidating throne. Twelve lions stood there, one on each side of the six steps. So there's the king sitting on top of the twelve tribes of Israel. He is the master. This is now getting scary, don't you think? This is like he should have a red background behind him and Lion King music playing as Scar takes the throne. Twelve lions stood there, one on each side of the six steps. Nothing like this had been made for any other kingdom. From a worldly sense, He's better than anybody else on earth. From a godly sense, he just keeps, get, like this is just keeps getting worse. My goodness, don't give a guy power. They just, it goes to their head. Verse 21, all King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold. All the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. For those that weren't here last week, the house of the forest is not an actual forest. It's a building with a bunch of pillars that look like a forest. Uh, not one was silver, for this was accounted as nothing in the days of Solomon. From one sense, God gives total wealth to Israel. From another sense, the wealth doesn't matter. It's all falling apart. Verse 22, for the king had merchant ships in the sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the merchant ships came bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and monkeys. 
Now we know we're in jungle territory. So the king Solomon surpassed all the things, all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. Um, there is strong historical evidence that this is an absolutely true statement. There is no evidence of any Egyptian pharaoh ever having this kind of trade network. The things on that list in verse 22 really do set Solomon apart historically as having the largest, at least the largest trade network of any king. If you're just trusting the Bible at face value, he's the greatest king the world has ever seen, greater than, than any other. And I love the fact that we just went through a chapter full of accomplishments and stuff, and the thing at the end of the list is monkeys, okay? Let's not miss the humor in this. The king had this and gold and wives from Egypt and all this stuff and monkeys. He just There's monkeys on top of the list. So I like that. How much money do you make? I make a lot of money. I got monkeys, right? The only other person I can think of that would say that is Michael Jackson. Like, there's this idea of like monkeys being, you got so much money you can spend it on really stupid stuff. That's the kind of wealth Solomon had. He had monkeys. Now all the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. Each man brought his present, articles of silver and gold, garments, armor, spices, horses, mules, at a set rate year by year. He was not just loved for his wealth, he's loved for his brains. He was smart and sexy. Like, this is Solomon, right? He was Obama and Jordan Peterson wrapped up into one person. People just came to hear the wisdom pouring from his mouth. I said both so that neither side of the political aisle could get mad at me, right? <laughs> And Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities with the king at Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. He made cedar trees as abundant as the sycamores, which are in the lowland. Don't be blinded by wealth here. Don't miss, don't miss this. This is the second time they've brought up horses and chariots. Scholars of the Jewish Torah should recognize now this has gotten said twice. God keeps his promises. The blessings are overflowing. But in the middle of that, Solomon's planting the seeds of sin and his fall. Verse 28, Solomon had horses imported from Egypt and Kiva. That's the third time horses have been mentioned. The king's merchants bought them from Kiva at the current price. Now a chariot that was imported from Egypt cost 600 shekels of silver. There's that number 600 again. And a horse 150. Thus through their agents they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Syria. So not only are they making weapons, they're selling those weapons to other nations. So at first they were for self-defense. He built strongholds. Then he built armies. Chariots are not a defensive weapon. They're an offensive weapon. He had cities of chariots. And now he's sharing those offensive weapons with other nations. Look like the history of the world? Suddenly he looks like a very human historical king. And he's planting the seeds of failure in, in these situations. So Solomon had, it's interesting here, when you get to verse 28, God is no longer in the picture. Did you notice the shift? Now Solomon had. It's not that the Lord's blessing him with these things. He did these things himself. And the, the writer, I, I don't know if it's inspired or just really artful, the Lord is now out of the picture. This is all Solomon at this point. So, and we get the third mention, verse 22, verse 26, and now we get to verse 28, horses, horses, horses. 
He's completely in love with his horses. But he shouldn't be multiplying horses to himself. Deuteronomy 17. Shouldn't be doing that. So this should taint the whole list. Not if the 666 didn't get you, then the monkeys and the horses should. It's stupid use of wealth. It's prideful use of wealth with the throne. And it's disobedient use of wealth with the horses. And this is changing. It's not a bad thing to have wealth and money. People point at Solomon for that. God absolutely blessed him for the first 20 years when he was doing God's work with the money. But when he starts using it on himself, he's destroying his legacy. He's bringing honor to himself instead of honor to God. I think the Babylon Bee got super excited because Elon Musk made a con confession of faith. I listened to that tape. He didn't confess anything. They said, you did little, and he's like, sure, why not? That's not, Elon Musk is just excited about money. And he's looking to extend money into power and, and acquisition. Solomon's doing the same thing. You can't point at anything particular except for the horses. I can point at the horses. That's direct defiance. God's true blessing is not on earth, and I don't want to close with nasty Solomon. I want to close with the book of John. Could you guys turn there with me? John chapter 4. I want to point to, like, as believers, we're not looking at this stuff as, as wealth and blessing. God gave us a very different lens to look at blessing, and I want to point out that Solomon's not on track. So John chapter 4. We'll get there. If you get to the Communist Manifesto, you've gone too far. Come back. John chapter 4, verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, who it is said to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. You would have given him living water. Oops, I already referenced this. I got ahead of myself. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered her and said to her, whoever drinks of this water is going to thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. The water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come to draw near. This is the mistake of Solomon. He got everything in this, he got all the water from the well of this world and he forgot about the water that mattered. And he kept adding to himself for the, from this world and he didn't ever think of his soul until the end of his life. And then he writes in Ecclesiastes with regret. So don't read Solomon and think, oh, God blesses people with money. God blessed Solomon with money to make a point. And, and we can still read this thousands of years later because God wanted this in the Bible. He wanted this warning for us that the wealth that God, the heavens and riches that God offers have nothing to do with this earth. So God, keep the worthless gold and silver away from me. Keep me in your presence. I want to draw near. I want to hold fast. I want to consider other people. Hebrews chapter 10. We're just doing that this morning. Help me to do that, Lord, because I don't care about ivory thrones lined with gold. They don't win. I want to be on a throne that matters next to my king. Better, yeah, I just want to be a servant dressed with a nice butler kind of thing being like, how can I help? I'm here, Lord. Here I am. Send me and just be a good servant and honor my king. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for Solomon. 
We thank you for the stories being recorded. We thank you for the detail with which they're given. We can get a glimpse into this ancient world and we can see your hand throughout history. Lord, we love doing that. We all become historians when we're looking for what you've done. And Lord, we thank you for the Bible as it documents your hand throughout human history. Uh, and we just celebrate that idea. Lord, I pray you work on our hearts. May we not pine after silver and gold and monkeys. Lord, may we just pine for your presence. May we go to your temple. May we go to your, the people of God and find our refuge every weekend. May we find our peace in your word and in your promises. And Lord, I just pray right now, if there's anybody in this room that doesn't get the difference between worldly wealth and, and heavenly gifts and riches, that they just bring themselves to your throne. Lord, forgive us our sins, wash us clean of that stuff, and help us to be renewed in a life that never ends, and in a living water that never leaves us thirsty. Lord, I can bear witness, so can many people in this room, that that is a true promise. Like, you absolutely fill us up. Lord, that's so awesome. We thank you for that gift. Lord, I pray for a blessing on each person in this room. May you go with them. May your Holy Spirit inspire them, give them boldness and courage. May they walk without fear. May you give them a peace that passes understanding and a joy that speaks to your glory and your presence. May they all be servants that the Queen of the South can see and say, wow, these people really do serve an amazing God. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.